we can't place the burden of our health entirely on the shoulders of our doctors. It's simply not fair. We patients must take an active role. And my hope is that by working hand in hand with our doctors, we will be able to achieve optimum health. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. And it's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima, as always. Today, I am bringing you a wonderful conversation with Leslie Kenny. She is the founder of Oxford HealthSpan and the sub-company Primidine, which is a spermidine-containing compound. And yes, it's exactly what you think it is, where it's from. And we are talking all about this compound today. As many of you know, I'm very much a supplement minimalist. There are only a few select supplements that I really, really love, and you hear about them on the podcast all the time. This is one of them. So Primidine, as I mentioned, is a supplement that you take that contains one milligram gram of spermidine. And today you're going to learn exactly what is spermidine, where we can find it both endogenously and exogenously. We talk about the uh, effects that it has on the body as a reducing some of the hallmarks of aging, including autophagy, including uh, cellular senescence, including protein folding, including uh, inflammation, membrane integrity, oxidative stress, glycation, mitochondrial dysfunction, et cetera. So we talk about all of those. And then we get into the conversation around well, first I needed to know why it was called spermidine. So that was a really uh, fun little uh, detour. But once we get once we get past that, because spermidine is really found all throughout the body. So this name was a little confusing to me. Uh, so when once we get past that, we talk about how uh, it can impact hair growth, how it can reverse graze and how it can keep your hair in the antigen phase or the growth phase, how it can improve deep sleep, how it can have possible effects on uh, cardiometabolic and brain health, how it can influence fat loss, um, as well. So we talk about this in the context of already having, you know, some of the foundational basics put into place. So I will put this sort of disclaimer at the front. Spermidine is certainly not a cure-all, be-all, end-all. If you have hormonal disruption, if you're not lifting weights, if you don't have your nutrition dialed in, if you have Hashimoto's or thyroid, this is not a miracle drug. I, I just absolutely despise when things are promoted as such. So I really want to take a conservative approach to this. And we say this several times throughout. If you have hormonal dysfunction, let's say, or you have Hashimoto's, this is not going to change that, but it is going to help 
uh, improve, let's say, the um, the melanocyte activity and the melanin uh, in the hair follicle. So we will where it's appropriate, we will put that disclaimer uh, disclaimer in. But I will say that in totality, the body of evidence does seem to have a relatively strong signal that spermidine is an important compound like NAD might be in terms of improving health span. You know, we can talk about longevity and, and lifespan, but in but I'm much more concerned, not necessarily about living forever, but for the time that I have on this planet that I live well. And that's what health span encompasses. So we talk about, uh, we talk about that and I'm really excited about this compound. And this is why I wanted the founder, Leslie, on. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Leslie. And in the show notes, you will find, if you are interested in finding out more, a uh, a coupon code for you to try Primidine if you are interested. So enjoy the show and we'll talk soon. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Leslie Kenny, welcome to The Better Podcast. I'm so happy to welcome you. And I am so honored and privileged to be here. It's going to be so much fun to hang out with you. Yeah, we're going to have a great time. And this is take two, as we were just talking about. <laughs> the last time we were actually trying to have this conversation was late last year. And yeah. in the middle of our conversation just my street. So this was how weird this was just my street, total black. There was a couple of my street. And then there was another one total blackout. Like my computer has no recollection of our conversation. And I was texting you or emailing you from my phone. I'm like, we just have a huge blackout. I don't know what just happened. So hopefully the gods and goddesses are in our favor today. So we can have a great conversation yes. of primidine and spermidine um, as well. Wonderful. All right. So before we before we jump in, uh, because this is a product, I, I haven't been this excited about a compound. Um, I think, you know, maybe magnesium, you know, compares or, or creatine, maybe in terms of mitochondrial health. But I, we're going to talk a lot about uh, spermidine, uh, which I always get a lot of questions about. And <laughs> before we before we dive in, though, I I think that your story is fascinating because you didn't necessarily start out in the health space. And I think like so many, uh, you know, women and men, uh, but when you're given a diagnosis, that's like, sorry, guys, we don't know what to do from here. You know, then you're like, okay, I got to find a solution for it. So I would love for you to walk us through sort of the origin story, if you will, of, you know, where you were, how you sort of found your, uh, your way to studying at Oxford um, uh, around spermidine. So I'd love for you to explain that to our, our listeners. 
Absolutely. Well, I think like a lot of women of my generation, I'll be 57 in a couple of months. I was brought up thinking that I could do everything, right? The career, the children, the house, just like Martha Stewart said it should be, right? And uh, I hadn't, I didn't understand that I was setting myself up for failure. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to be all those things to all people. And I was doing that in Hong Kong where I had an online matchmaking company. And it was around 2000, I went through the boom and the bust of, uh, you know, the dot-com bubble. And my health began to deteriorate quite a lot. And when I went to my doctor, uh, this was in 2004, I was also, I was 39. I was undergoing a lot of fertility treatments. I think I was on my fifth IVF round. I was doing donor eggs. I had the acupuncturist there, you know, as the eggs were put into me and getting everything right. So I was seeing a lot of doctors, but I noticed pain in my hands and I couldn't use scissors very well. And I was having trouble on my keyboard. So I went to the doctor and just said, I think it's probably just some age related arthritis or something. You know, I'm not sure what it is. Can you just check this out? And that's when I got that call that nobody wants, where it's not the receptionist that calls to say they're fine. Your test results are fine. But it is actually the doctor who calls you and says, your results are back and I'd like you to come into the office so we can discuss them, which we know is it's, that never bodes well. So I went into the office and bear in mind, I'd seen a lot of doctors all on the fertility side at this point who repeatedly use that word infertile. It's really terrible when a man in a white jacket says to you as a woman that you're infertile. So I was used to doctors giving me bad news and me giving a bit of pushback. So when the doctor said, well, you've got rheumatoid arthritis and we're going to send you some immune suppressants, some, I think they started me on Enbrel. We're going to send these, these syringes to you but you also have lupus, which I had never heard of. And unfortunately, there's no cure for that. Those are terrible things to hear as a patient because I didn't even know what this was. And I said, are we sure about this? What is it? What does it mean for me? How can there not be a cure? You're the doctor. You must have answers. That's why we come to doctors, because they must have the answers. And she said that, uh, unfortunately, there was no cure. And I said, but I'm doing my fifth IVF round, and I'm using donor eggs. This is really bad timing for me. You need to find an answer. <laughs> and she looked at me, I think, just with so much incredulity, because she just said, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that doing this round of IVF makes sense. Given your cytokine levels and your tumor necrosis factor alpha levels, you probably have a good five years. And 
So she's talking I'm about just, you. She's talking about She's talking about life. me. Yeah, yeah, about me, yeah. about the uh, finiteness of my life. And I, I just didn't, you know, la, 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 does not, do not comprehend, right? It is when we hear something that just does not fit with our picture of the world or how we want our reality to be, we ignore it or try to push it out. And I just said, but wait, what about a false positive? Maybe this test was wrong. Is it possible? And she gave me a very sympathetic look. And I said, can I do it again? And she said, well, of course you can do it again. And I just thought, okay, right. Now I've got to go out there and I have to prove that this test was wrong. And I threw the kitchen sink at it. I did yoga. I did a Mayan abdominal massage. I did uh, tinctures of echinacea that I made myself. I did the, uh, the anti-inflammatory zone diet that Barry Sears had made popular back then. I also did a very experimental treatment called intravenous immunoglobulin. And that I did two rounds of it. It was around 12,000 US dollars for each one. So not, not cheap. And the idea was that it would bring my immune system back into balance as opposed to what the other drugs were doing, which was actually suppressing my immune system. So when I looked at these different therapies, I thought immune homeostasis, immune balance, or immune suppression. And I decided I would try this experimental therapy. I'm very, very glad that I did now uh, because I have calculated that I would have spent now over a million US dollars on the Enbrel, on the Humira, because it's about 5,000 US dollars every single month. And and there's no exit strategy. It's just management there's no of symptoms, exit. right? Yeah. And you go from, you'll know this better than anyone, you go from one drug, it works for about 18 months, and then the body figures it out and tries to circumvent it. And then you've got to move to a new, uh, a new immunosuppressant. And at the end, you tend to be put on methotrexate, which is a chemo drug. And I've always had this philosophy of bringing things into balance. It could be because I'm half Taiwanese and just this philosophy of, you know, balancing things, the yin and the yang and the inner wisdom or the innate wisdom of the body to try to achieve balance as it tries to heal itself. That always appealed to me. And so, as I said, um, I'm very pleased I did it because not only did I save money, when I went back to do that test again, several months later, the doctor said, negative, your CRP is you know, below one, your TNF alpha is low, your cytokines have all dropped. And I just said, do you want to know what I did? And she just said, well, I think it was just a blip. And that moment will never leave me because I realized how much power as a patient, how much power we actually have to allow our bodies to heal. And it also made me realize that had I accepted the diagnosis, and I'm not saying that all diagnoses should be ignored, but had I accepted it, I would have been on this never ending train 
of immunosuppressant after immunosuppressant. And as you said, there's no exit strategy. So that moment of empowerment was really what put me on my journey towards finding optimum health, not just for myself, but helping others understand that we can't place the burden of our health entirely on the shoulders of our doctors. It's simply not fair. We patients must take an active role. And my hope is that by working hand in hand with our doctors, we will be able to achieve optimum health, right? Yeah, I, so, I love I love what you're saying here, because this is something that um, I, I really want to drill down. This is sort of a message that I have been noodling on, in particular with the pandemic. Um, and we don't have to get into all of that. But I, I think that the um, the overarching idea here is that no one is responsible for your health but you, not your husband, not your friend, certainly not your doctor. I mean, they can help facilitate and they can help advocate and they can help, um, you know, get you the drugs and or the treatment and or the care that you potentially need. But at the end of the day, it's not them who's responsible for you. It's you who is responsible for you. And that's why I think your story, I wanted to start off with it because I think it's incredible for, you know, for, for you to have this diagnosis of lupus, which is an autoimmune disease. Like it's nothing to, it's not just like, yeah, I think you have a cold. It'll be gone in a couple of weeks. Like this is a death sentence in many, uh, in many cases. And I think for you to be able to come back and say, all right, it's gone. And she's like, well, must've been a mistake. You know, and yeah. at, at, you know, I mean, I mean, part of that is maybe some of the hubris that, uh, you know, we don't need to touch that sort of lives in the medical establishment. Like, oh, it must have been a mistake because we're never wrong, you know, or you don't have the necessary tools to sort of <laughs> to sort of approach this. And you have found, you know, I guess through this, uh, you know, this immuno, this globulin therapy, uh, this um, therapy that you found um, was certainly um uh, while it, as you mentioned, may have had, you know, some uh, controversy to it, but was very, very beneficial for you in the end. And so how did that lead you to spermidine? So you're at this place now where you have sort of this clean bill of health, let's say, and I'm using, you know, air quotes, clean bill of health. How, how do you find spermidine? How does that, how does that come into your, uh, into your line of vision? Well, I took about 10 years to not just regain my health, but to then get pregnant naturally without any IVF, no IUI, no acupuncture, anything, just completely naturally and delivered a baby at age 43. And I had adopted a child a few years, three years earlier. So I was busy raising these two kids. And it was while I was on the playground collecting them from school that I would have conversations with some of the other parents. And if you live in a place like Oxford, I suppose it's probably like when you live in you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts or something, or Cambridge, England, the parents in these tiny university towns are doing something interesting. They're translating a new version of the Aeneid or they're finding a cure to cancer, right? And so I would talk to them about whatever, transcranial electrostimulation or immunology. And I'd say, wow, these are great ideas. It's so interesting what you're doing. Have you thought of starting a company for that? And they'd say, oh, well, you know, I thought about it, but it's a lot of work. How would I raise money? And I just said, I'll do that. I can help. I love being a cheerleader for these new 
uh, breakthrough therapies. And the more I got involved with the university ecosystem around this, the more I became aware of a group, a small group, um, in particular two women and their lab that was working on the immune system, immune senescence, and on spermidine. And the, uh, the university has its own innovation group. And when I talked to them, they said, we think you'd be really interested in the work of these two people. The only thing is that you can't commercialize this because there will never be a patent around this molecule because it is it's in food. And so commercially, it's not such a great, it's not such a great idea because it can't be patented. But this, of course, is a bit like, you know, a red flag to a bull. And I was thinking, hmm, is that a true statement? I wonder, wouldn't people be interested in knowing about this and getting this if it could, in fact, reverse the age of the immune system? So I was introduced to Professor Katja Simon, an immunologist here at the University of Oxford, and one of her postdocs, Dr. Gada Al-Saleh, and looked at their work on how spermidine was potentiating the, uh, the antibody response in elderly mice who were given vaccines. And thought, wow, this is fascinating. And in fact, Katja had gotten a, uh, she'd gotten the beginnings of a patent back in 2014, but had let it lapse. And when she let it lapse, that then went into, you know, to the universe as uh, prior art. That means that it can't be patented ever again. And as a result, uh, you know, not interesting to any pharmaceutical company. But I thought there's definitely something there, right? And many people, well, many, some people believe that if you can reverse age the immune system, you can reverse age the other organs. So I started looking at spermidine, looking at the research, and I could see that it was helpful to lung health in asthmatics. I could see that it was helpful to fertility, that it was helpful for bone health, that it was helpful for heart health. It was good for cognition. It sort of had, you know, that sort of too good to be true, uh, you know, was, was positive for so many different aspects of human health. But what really got me excited was when I read a paper about the hallmarks of aging and it listed uh, rapamycin, metformin, lithium, um, estradiol even, all of these things that we know are anti-aging molecules, NAD, glucosamine, and it had spermidine. And spermidine was inhibiting at that time, five of the hallmarks of aging. Since then, it has been found to also help with keeping long telomeres, which is a sixth hallmark. And Rapamycin was the only other molecule that inhibited as many of those hallmarks, those pathways down which we age. And why it's important is because if we can press on those nine levers, the idea is we can slow down the aging process. And if we slow down the aging process, we can slow the onset of all those diseases of aging, cancer. Uh, I'd say my autoimmune disease was a symptom of my 
biological, uh, you know, elderly status in a way. Um, heart disease, Alzheimer's, these are all illnesses of aging. And so rather than treating those illnesses, why not just slow down the aging process and avoid them for as long as possible? And that's what health span is about, right? So that's when I decided to commercialize spermidine and uh, began to work with a wonderful group in Japan called the Japan Autophagy Consortium, uh, the patron of which is Yoshinori Osumi, the 2016 Nobel Laureate in Medicine or Physiology. And, uh, and then his, uh, one of his colleagues, uh, Tomatsu Yoshimori at the University of Osaka. So it's, uh, you know, we're really looking at all of these, all different sources of spermidine that can help trigger, um, that can help inhibit these hallmarks of aging but also help with the process of autophagy or cell renewal and recycling. And you and your audience will know that cells are the foundation of our, the health of our organs and tissues. And so if we can just make those as healthy as possible, the rest of us, everything else will start to fall into place because the, the cells need to be in balance. They need to have cellular homeostasis and autophagy helps with that. So. Uh, spermidine was really, it really felt like it was the time to bring it out given the Nobel Prize uh, being awarded in 2016. People are just starting to hear about it and thought it was the perfect time to bring out one that we've lab tested uh, to ensure that the amount of spermidine that it says on the bottle, that's exactly what you get inside because there, you know, you can never tell what's out there. There are very few labs that actually measure the amount of spermidine in these supplements. Yeah. Can, I think supplements in general can be a bit of the wild, wild west. Like you just don't know what you're getting. And I, I, I want to, I want to come back to the hallmarks of aging and I want to really make sure that we do a deep dive in terms of oxidative stress and autophagy and glycation and all, all of that. But I just think for the audience who's never heard of spermidine, I would love to just define what it is, where it comes from and where I know that there's three main ways that we can sort of get spermidine endogenously, exogenously. So let, let's talk a little bit about where spermidine comes from. And we can talk, you know, if you uh, feel comfortable talking about the metabolic pathway in terms of where, you know, the derivatives in terms of the polyamine flux pathway, yeah. we can do that as well. Like, so where, where does spermidine come from? Okay. So we manufacture spermidine, as you mentioned, endogenously in our bodies, in our tissues and in our gut biome. So there are different strains of bacteria in the gut biome that will produce it just like they can produce neurotransmitters and other and vitamins, right? And as we get older, um, we lose the ability to produce it in our tissues and the gut biome, if it has suffered from say an onslaught of broad spectrum antibiotics, the gut biome's ability to manufacture also goes down, which makes the third way that we get it, which is exogenously or from outside of the body, we get it from food. It makes that third source very, very important. So all plants, in spite of the name, in spite of the saucy name, um, it comes in all plants, all plants, all animals, every person you see on the street, uh, 
Everybody, male or female, right? <laughs> male or female, right. male or female, does not matter what yeah. your gender is. Everyone manufactures these polyamines. And the big ones that are part of the polyamine recycling loop would be spermidine, spermine, and the beautifully named putrescine. What were they thinking, right? <laughs> but spermidine is in exceedingly high quantities in human sperm, in semen. And it is also in extremely high quantities in human breast milk. When we are infants, that is the time when we will have the highest concentration of spermidine in our bodies. It enables the body to grow. That's why breast milk is full of spermidine because we mothers need to help our babies grow. The other thing, why it's important there is that it will help downregulate zonulin. Zonulin opens up the tight junctions of the gut lining. And so for that very um, naive infant gastrointestinal tract, it really needs to have some support in uh, making those tight junctions as tight as possible so the baby can get ready for food. So where it comes from, it's literally all around us. And we are making it all all throughout our lives, but in decreasing quantities, just like you know, we stop producing melatonin in the same amounts. We stop producing NAD, progesterone, estrogen. Same, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Testosterone, mm -hmm. all these wonderful things, right? NAD also, which inhibits a hallmark of aging. All these things we need go down in quantity. The production goes down in quantity as we get older. And that's why topping up in whatever way we can through food and foods like um, wheat germ, uh, natto, which is a fermented Japanese soybean dish um, from shiitake mushrooms, peas, legumes, they have high quantities. But honestly, any plant will have it. Uh, carnivores, I'm very sorry to say, will not be getting a lot unless they're having chicken liver. I don't know why it's not beef liver. It's not lamb liver. It's just chicken liver that has high quantities of spermidine. But we need to then get it from outside of the body. And, the and if I can interrupt you, can I interrupt yeah, you for please. one moment? Just why is if it's produced in all plants and this is just like a naming thing. I'm just curious, but why was it named spermidine? Is it because we see the highest concentration in, in seminal fluid? Like why, why is it named that? No. Uh, it was because Antony van Leeuwenhoek, who is the father of modern biology, who, you know, created the first microscope. He was casting about in his um, in his studio or his lab for things to put under the microscope to look at and to sort of imagine a guy, right? <laughs> I put my hair under there. I put spit under there. What, you know, what else? Urine. Oh, I know. Semen. Let's just put that under there. And so he looked at it and he saw that as it dried, there were crystals on the, uh, on the plate. And he did not know what the crystals were, but he knew where they came from. And so he decided to call those crystals spermine. Later on, when other scientists looked at this, they then kind of kept the same naming um, convention and then named the other polyamine identified there spermidine. Mm -hmm. And actually, the polyamines have some terrible names, cadaverine, putrescine. 
not nice what, and they what are essential. were they thinking i agree <laughs> what why is it always oh goodness okay well we won't we won't go there but male researchers sometimes you know funny funny yeah. yeah this is this is why apple brought in all the women to write the uh, handbooks right on mm-hmm. how to use the the mac i think that honestly we should have been allowed into the lab to name these things right i remember when and just as a funny thing i remember when the ipad came out all the women were like what who named this thing like ipad <laughs> come on guys yeah another example of like men naming things badly don't remind me of my cycle yes yeah, exactly like <laughs> ipad great all right so let's let's come back to the hallmarks of aging because i think this is really really interesting and it's you know what you said before i think is really important it's like this this compound that seems to really it's like too good to be true it's working on all of these different hallmarks of aging and i would love to uh maybe just double click on a few of them in particular i'd like to start with autophagy and then oxidative stress and then we can maybe talk about uh, glycation and some of the misfolded you know proteins and 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 cellular senescence but let, let's talk a little bit about autophagy because this word it's it's become a sort of like a really popular word everyone you know it's often discussed in the context of fasting where we say well when you are fasting you upregulate autophagy autophagy is happening all the time but there are things like fasting like exercise that can upregulate that can augment uh, autophagy uh, the the um you know, the activity of autophagy, we're constantly cleaning our cells. Uh, and I, I believe that spermidine is also one of those compounds like exercise, like fasting, that can also augment or elevate the level of cell turnover. Is that correct? Exactly. So it is a fasting mimetic. And uh, if you are someone who is hypothyroid, which I am, I can't fast for very long. It's actually counterproductive for me because it downregulates my metabolism. And as a result, finding something like this is a better alternative for me personally. And in in terms of autophagy, um, I think that, yes, we've heard a lot about auto and phagy. These are Greek terms for self and eating. Um, And rather than it being actually self-cannibalization, it's more like Pac-Man going and just eating the bad mitochondria, the bad organelles, um, these things that these components of the cell that are that need to be disposed of, right? It's like having old cars on uh, old tires on your car. You need to replace them. But if you just keep those old tires, you know the functionality of the car is not going to go anywhere. So autophagy is basically the process of taking your cells into the garage and having uh, you know what we call an MOT here in the UK. You know, just getting everything checked out and bringing the cell back to balance, cellular balance, cellular homeostasis. And um, it can also do something called mitophagy, which is basically the equivalent within the mitochondria. So it can create renewal and repair of the mitochondria. Um, Spermidine also triggers something called virophagy where it is eating up viruses in the body. And there was even a study in Berlin at one of the hospitals there early on in in vitro of the virus that shall not be named and spermidine as well, because spermidine will swarm viruses. And 
finally, um, it will also help with fats that will be engulfed or eaten bad fats in the body. And that's why um, this, this can, and it's not definitive, but seems to, uh, um, seems to help with reducing triglycerides. Uh, certainly nobilitin can do that when it triggers autophagy, it also triggers lipophagy and hence why triglycerides have gone down in some individuals who've been taking the other autophagy inducer nobilitin. Um, but as a, as a concept, yeah, it is, it is getting to be hot at the moment. And I suppose it's uh, probably important to say that what you mentioned before the Goldilocks zone, you can do too little autophagy, but you can also do too much. And if you do too much, then you're going to kill off healthy cells. So a few weeks ago, there was a very famous longevity expert who was asked what his supplement stack was. And he said, uh, you know, he took a gram of spermidine. That's a thousand milligrams. And I had so many people writing to me saying, your product only has one milligram, but he takes a thousand milligrams. And I'm, you know, I just wrote, well, then he will probably kill all his cells because that is too much. Well, there's something to be said about the area under the curve. This is the other thing, right? So when we think about benefit, it's like you can fast, you can fast too much. You can calorically restrict, you can calorically restrict too much. You can have fat, you can have too much fat. You can, you know, it's like everything is relative. So you can you know, and as you said, you know, there's at sort of at the lower end of that bell, if you sort of, if, you know, for those of you that remember university and you remember everything was graded on that bell curve, what we're talking about is the area under that bell curve. So underneath, you know, sort of that lower first part of the bell, you're going to get some benefit, but the majority is going to cluster under, you know, if you're talking about universities around 65, they're going to give you a 65. Most people get 60 to 65 at university. And then as you ride that curve over the uh, over the X axis, as you trans, you're also going to start to see decreasing uh, rate of return on the benefits. So this is, um, you know, I, I, I have this um, maybe this is an extreme view, but it's like. I love to look at nuance. Like it's not enough to say you fast. Oh, I do fasting. I do a 16-8 every single day. Maybe that's too much for you. You know, maybe taking a gram of spermidine, maybe you, you know, the the uh, the amount of, uh, you know, cell apoptosis or cell death that's happening is now too aggressive. And now you're negating any of the benefits that that gentle cell renewal um you know, can, can afford. So yeah, absolutely. It's like uh, Dr. Stephen Gundry was, you interviewed him uh, maybe a month or so ago and he was saying fasting 365 days a year. No fasting one day. Good fasting every day. Not good. Right. Right. It is that nuance. And I do think that there's even more nuance because for women and some of us are hypothyroid fasting is going to be really difficult. Uh, Some of us are going through menopause. Fasting for some people, I remember when I was going into ketosis on purpose, going through menopause, because I was training to be a bulletproof coach, I was getting terrible night sweats. So we're each individual, we've got to find what's right for us, but definitely the nuance 
is very important to take into consideration. And dosing is something I take very, very seriously um, because the, the poison is in the dose, right? Right. The dose makes the poison. Um, so let's let's talk about the one milligram because we mentioned it. And I also want to, yeah. uh, you also mentioned Nobilitan. So I don't think we've defined that yet for, um, yeah. our, for our listeners. So let's talk about, you know, your product uh, is called primidine, which is, yes. you know, play on the word, you know, spermidine. And I would also guess like prime of your life. I'm yes. Thinking. For yes. the new prime of life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So primidine exactly. has one milligram of spermidine in it. Why is that the dosing that you chose? So that's the minimum effective dose in the human trials for cognition. So, uh, you know, Spermidine, although polyamines have been studied for decades, and there are over 13,000 papers on polyamines, um, in terms of human trials of spermidine, food-derived spermidine, uh, the ones that have been done have been conducted with one milligram. The highest dose, and it's still an ongoing study, is six milligrams. The European Food Safety Authority has put a cap of six milligrams per day um, for supplemental food-derived spermidine. And so that's why we chose one milligram. We knew we were not going to go over that six milligram threshold, and we knew that there was evidence of benefit to memory and cognition at that, uh, at that level. So that's, that was really the reason for that choice. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Okay. And let's talk about Nobilitan. You, you mentioned that we were talking about that in the pre-chat in terms of yeah. being the gluten-free alternative, but maybe just define what Nobilitan is. And then we can start talking a little bit about hair and skin and cardiometabolic mm. and brain. Yeah. Nobilitan is found in citrus and in particular on the island, the longevity blue zone island of Okinawa in Japan. The shikawasa lime is known as the longevity citrus for its uh, use in, uh, in traditional foods and medicines. It's used in Japanese medicine, that's kanpo medicine. And it's most likely due to a molecule called nobilitin, which has been found to really help decrease triglycerides in humans without altering their food intake. So uh, this molecule also triggers autophagy. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to add it to our spermidine because we felt there were synergies between it. And the primidine gluten-free version, which is called primidine GF, has 1.2 milligrams of spermidine. And then it has around 
0.35 milligrams of nobilitin. That is the amount that was used uh, and shown to be the minimum effective dose in a human trial. So we've put those two together to help with triggering autophagy in the body. And we've also added in some turmeric. All of it is sourced from Okinawa. It's all manufactured in an FDA registered facility in Okinawa. And uh, that is now finally on the market. I'm so glad because there were so many other individuals, autoimmune patients like me who said, Leslie, this is a great product, but unfortunately I cannot do gluten or people who were celiac or people who said, look, I've got, you know, I was on the pill for 10 years. I've got terrible candida and leaky gut. No way can I have gluten, which is what is in the original primating just you know, they're 40 milligrams, which is less than one one hundredth, one one fiftieth or one one hundredth of a slice of bread, but it was still enough to affect them. So this product was really brought out to address the needs of those individuals who might be on the autoimmune paleo diet, you know, or on Dr. Gundry's diet where you can't have lectins. Gluten is probably the most famous lectin out there. And yet you still get the benefits of autophagy. And uh, both spermidine and turmeric are anti-inflammatory. So there was a nice synergy there too. Wonderful. And just, I want to talk, uh, as I was mentioning, I want to talk a little bit about what I've noticed on, uh, by taking primidine for this, you know, I don't know how many months I've been taking it now, maybe seven, eight months now. Um, and we can talk about hair and eyebrows and all that that we were talking in the pre-chat. But the one thing I, I did want to um, just come back to, because uh, I want to make sure that we cover this, is you were mentioning, you know, just like all these compounds like NAD and estradiol and testosterone, you know, spermidine lowers as we age, you know, our ability in the microbiome, let's say, to synthesize it. Uh, if we're not being conscious of where we're getting it exogenously, maybe we're taking it in supplement form as we would with primidine or we're taking it in wheat germ or or chicken liver or, um, you know, NATO, uh, uh, NATO, pardon me. Um, one of the things that I've heard you talk about, and I would love for you to, to share it with, um, with my listeners here is, and, and, and Dave, who's been on the show, uh, Dave Asprey has talked about this idea for men in particular, that it's a good idea, you know, when we're talking about sexual health, because this is something that is obviously produced in the sperm for them to abstain from ejaculating as often as they might want, right? But to become aroused, but not necessarily to uh, to orgasm. Can you speak to whether or not that might be lending to an increased ability for the male, uh, at least, you know, for our beautiful men who we, you know, we talk so much about women here and we're going to talk about perimenopause, I promise. But I wanted to just have a little shout out here for our beautiful men who we also want to take care of as they're aging. Is there a... Um, uh, a practice, let's say, that, you know, we could encourage our men to, you know, maybe become excited, but not necessarily to climax. Exactly. Well, so I can speak to this, uh, partly because when I was running my online matchmaking company in Asia Pacific, I got the moniker of being the high priestess of sex in China from an Italian daily paper, the Corriere della Sera. And 
Uh, I have worked with a physiologist here at the University of Oxford. You must have professor. that on a t-shirt somewhere, though. You have to. You Wouldn't have that, that be great? High priestess of <laughs> No, but it is always the question, you know, when you do those icebreakers with large groups of people and they say, say so, you tell the person you're talking to one thing that they would never guess about you. And that is always, that is always it. Right. I love it. Um, so I work, I've worked with Professor Dennis Noble here at the University of Oxford on this exact topic because he was given the opportunity by a former pupil of his, the Empress of Japan, to look at 30 scrolls that were written in 984 by the court physician to the Japanese emperor and which contained three scrolls devoted only to longevity, one of which is only about sexual intimacy and longevity. So Dennis and I looked at this, um, me having a lot of knowledge of these Eastern practices from having worked with, you know, reproductive groups in China and him from the role of a physiologist. And we said, is it possible that these ancient Taoist instructions and bear in mind that Tantra and Taoism, these practices will have had influence on one another. So they're similar. Is it possible that those instructions for the emperor, could they really work? And the instructions are for very slow sex, for touching the meridians through the, the arms, through the neck. Actually, they're very interesting because they're sort of touching around here. The thymus is right here. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that they're opening up meridians? But of course, there is this issue of the man is getting very aroused, which turns on his internal pharmacy, right? And the pharmacy is saying, oh, well, I'm getting very aroused. I think I'm about to reproduce and starts manufacturing semen. And it is in that process that there will be a lot of spermidine that will be manufactured. So the body will say, okay, I'm going to take some arginine here. I'm going to take some, uh, some SAMe and I'm going to put these together and I'm going to make spermidine and I'm going to get it ready to be ejaculated. But then the question is, what if, we don't allow that ejaculation. What if the man practices seminal retention? Is it possible for him to benefit from having actually manufactured a lot of spermidine? And what Dennis and I have posited is that indeed it will benefit the man because all of the spermidine will still be able to circulate within the body if you were practicing the proper way. And um, actually, Dennis just wrote a paper that was published in an Australian journal called Eon that you might want to link to, um, which was called uh, Slow Sex, Long Life. And that goes into all of this. And of course, it's not just spermidine that is produced in this, but oxytocin is increased. And we know from the work of Elizabeth Blackburn and Elizabeth Apple at UC San Francisco that couples that have intercourse, even if they say that their relationship is not good, they have longer telomeres. And is it because the, the woman is getting spermidine from the man? And is it because the man is also manufacturing more? That we don't know, but we know that there is this 
anomaly that uh, you can take groups of couples, some that say, yeah, happily married. We love each other. We have not had sex in decades. And you have other couples that say, don't really like them very much, but we do have regular sex. And the ones that don't really like each other, but have regular sex will actually be healthier. So uh, really fascinating, that whole thing. So I do, uh, we do believe that there is credence to it. And it's again, unlocking the mysteries of the body's internal pharmacopoeia. Just like the gut biome produces these vitamins and hormones and neurotransmitters and polyamines like spermidine. Um, what else is being produced in our tissues like spermidine? Right. And then for the women, so, you know, I led in with the men, but I had a sort of a selfish question that is going to come on the tail of it. So let's say you have, a, you know, a relationship with your male, whether you like him or not, that's a different podcast. <laughs> it's a different <laughs> subject. But let's say you've decided that this time there will be no seminal retention. So yes. maybe you've been practicing and arousal, but he hasn't climaxed. And maybe she has, because we know that for men and women, it's like for women, it's like as many as you can get, right? As yeah. many orgasms as you can get in terms of like balancing hormones and, and, and all of that. But let's say this time, you know, as a couple, uh, there's going to be ejaculate, like the, the man is going to climax. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a benefit? Um, how shall I say this without sounding crass? Is there, is there, <laughs> is there, is there a benefit, whether it's received vaginally or orally? Is there a difference between the two? Do we know anything of, of that sort? Well, so vaginal mucosal mucosa and oral mucosa are very similar, as you know. And whether or not, if it's absorbed through the vagina, um, there is at least one study which shows that women who, um, who enjoy um, sex and their husbands ejaculate into the vagina, it does seem to help with the health of the vagina. And uh, if you were to ingest through the, uh, through the oral mucosa, of course, then it would go into the intestinal lumen. And spermidine is very, very bioavailable in the lumen. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we didn't bother to make a liposomal version of this, because it's just so very bioavailable. You wouldn't need to. And I think that either way is it's probably going to get into the body. Um, and uh, there will be, I'm guessing, a holistic benefit, whichever way you do it. Vaginally does seem to help women with um, vaginal health. Though. I'll have to find that study again. But I remember coming across it a long time ago and thinking, oh, this is interesting, but I probably can't talk about it on a podcast. Yes, except this one. <laughs> except, except this one. Exactly. Yeah. Except for Stephanie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because Stephanie wants to know. Because I'm thinking like there's there's acidic environments either side, right? So like when the, when the spermidine reaches the stomach, of course, that's a highly acidic environment. And then of yeah. course, the vagina, if, you know, depending on where a woman woman is in her cycle, assuming that she's still in her reproductive years, can also be a very hostile environment as well for sperm. And we know this. So I was just wondering if there's a difference in terms of uh, maybe the survival rate um, of the spermidine in particular, um, whether it was like orally received or, or vaginally. Well, interesting about the, the, uh, the acid environment comment. So we know that spermidine help seems to help with, um, with hydrogen peroxide. I'm sure I've read that somewhere. I'm just sort of 
thinking where I have seen that. I mean, I know glutathione, catalase, superoxide, dismutase help as well, but I'm sure I've seen that spermidine helps with this. And one of the reasons that it is produced in great quantities in semen is because Producing semen is a very oxidative event for men. There is a lot of reactive oxygen species in producing sperm. And so you need a lot of spermidine for protection. So it would not surprise me, though, don't quote me on this. It would not surprise me if it can survive in an acidic environment, if it can deal with hydrogen peroxide and it can deal with a lot of ROS. Um, I think it has certainly a better chance than a lot of other things to survive. Yeah. And that, you know, that's part of the reason why I don't really love probiotics because it's like, well, you take them and unless if they're sort of packaged in a certain way, you know, they're sort of going to be dead on arrival, right? Because yeah. the acidic environment of the stomach is such that, you know, if you have any viable probiotics in the product to begin with, yeah. you know, yeah. once it reaches the HCL in the stomach that it's sort of DOA. Yeah. And that's why we also put a prebiotic in our product because we thought there is a strain of bacteria that you can introduce to produce it in your gut. But then it was like, what's the delivery mechanism? How will we get it there into the gut intact? So we just decided, well, let's add a prebiotic because that will selectively feed the strains that want that fructooligosaccharide. And then they will be stronger and more able to produce spermidine in the gut biome. One of the things that I've noticed um, in the several months that I've been taking it is, and I was was saying this to you, um, actually the, when I first reached out to you around uh, the product itself was that my hair was starting to go from gray back to, uh, you know, we'll call this midnight brown. I don't know what color you would call this, like dark brown, you know, black, it's not quite black, but it's, you know, very, very dark brown. Um, so, uh, and I've noticed that and I actually should take, um, I'll, I'll try to see if I can take a, a photo of my hair because you sort of have, like, you can't really see it now, but there's like areas that I still have what I still have some, some grays, but there's like areas that are kind of around here that they have like the white and then just beyond it or just, sorry, just ahead of it, sorry, is brown again. So it was gray. And then now it's back to its original um, color. And I wanted to touch on you know, the different um, cycles of, of the hair, because we have, you know, the, an, you know, the antigen phase, the catagen phase, uh, telogen, exogen, um, and how spermidine might be affecting the, um, the color of the hair and also potentially uh, the full, like I was saying to you in the pre-chat, my eyebrows, um, I mean, I'm, they're already naturally relatively full, just being of, you know, Middle Eastern, you know, Mediterranean descent. But, you know, with age, they, you know, they thin out like I got an eyebrow pencil like anybody does. Right. But not really, <laughs> not really, not really needing to use it uh, in the past eight or nine months or so since uh, since starting it. So I wanted to see if you might be able to comment on hair growth in on the head in particular, because a lot of women, particularly in their 30s and 40s and 50s, start to notice hair thinning out. Um, you know, women with PCOS will start notice like the temples thinning out as well. Um, and then eyelashes, eyebrows, hair. Sure. Absolutely. So you mentioned the antigen or the growth phase, and that is really what we want our hair to be in as much as possible. So when we're young, it's in the antigen phase quite a lot. You know, I look at my 17 year old daughter with her glossy dark hair and I, she could put it into a ponytail swishing and so full. And I always think, Wow, look at that. And um, what that is, is her hair is an antigen all the time, right? As we get older, we then 
start to find that our hair goes into catagen, resting phase, or telogen effluvian stage where it's ready to shed. It is only in the antigen or growth phase of the hair life cycle that melanogenesis happens. So if you want melanin or pigment, the hair has got to be, the follicle has got to be in the growth phase. And one of the things that spermidine does is it will, when human hair follicles are in the presence of spermidine, they will go into the antigen phase. Um, 26% more hair follicles will go into the antigen phase than say six days prior. So over the course of six days, all of a sudden you have a huge amount more hair that is going into the growth phase than before, which is a very, very big deal. And it is during that time that spermidine can also modulate the human epithelial stem cell in the hair follicle. So we've talked about, you know, those hallmarks of aging. And one of those hallmarks is stem cell dysfunction. If you have stem cell dysfunction systemically, it's also going to hit your hair. And those epithelial stem cells in the hair follicle are, if they're dysfunctional, you're going to get those frizzy hairs, those unpigmented hairs, and they might even get thinner or maybe just coarser, but it does change. The texture definitely changes. So what's well, those gray hairs are squiggly, like those yeah. know, gray hairs that I have, they're different than the regular hair yeah. that I have. Yeah. They're yeah. different. And every woman tells me this and I've, yeah. you know, I've had them too, but what is actually interesting is some people will say they take the product and they say, well, I still have my gray hair. And I'll say, but how many of the squiggly hairs do you have? And they'll say, oh, Actually, no, you're right. They're straighter. Like if I look, it's straight at the root and it is squiggly at the bottom. Right. That is actually progress because already there, the texture is changing. The other thing that tends to happen because spermidine uh, and our, our product in particular, we've tested for this, it increases the keratin production. So we've had women write to us and say, oh, it's so great. I've been on this for 12 months and I don't have to do my keratin treatments anymore. And I always think, I didn't even know what a keratin treatment was. What, I was going to ask, what is that? What, is well, that... I, I think it's a Japanese treatment where they put keratin on the hair and they heat the hair such that it makes the hair smoother and uh, shinier. So, you know, we all know when we look at young people, we see the, um, the texture and the glossiness of the hair. And it does, you know, it has a very particular look to it, right? And keratin is supposed to do that. So it gives this euthanine effect to the hair, which then naturally gives a euthanine halo effect to the rest of the body, right? So spermidine will increase keratin, the epithelial stem cells in the hair bulge, the melanin production there. And uh, what I will say is that if a woman has an underlying issue you know, you mentioned, um, you mentioned PCOS and a lot of, I'm just thinking, I might not have this right, but I'm thinking that those with PCOS um, might tend to get more male pattern baldness. And I think some of that is due to high five alpha reductase. Yes. Yeah, so yes. exactly. They're converting testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. Correct. And those women, I would say, if you've got that, your root cause is really that high five alpha 
uh, reductase enzyme activity, and spermidine is not going to inhibit that. Then I would say those women need melatonin because that will inhibit it. Or you know, they might try cell palmetto, but I actually like melatonin better. Um, women who have thyroid issues, which I'm a hypothyroid patient. If you're hypothyroid, you're going to get really thinning hair. I have seen women with bald spots on their head in their 40s. Um, you will go prematurely gray. And this is not going to reverse a hypothyroid condition. So those would be my caveats. Um, you know, if you've got androgenetic alopecia or that male pattern baldness, or you've got um, hair thinning due to thyroid issues, that we can't help with, but we can help with all the other types of hair loss. Well, this is where you might consider, you know, it, what you're talking about is really root cause medicine, right? So how yeah. can we, if you have some, if you have somebody who is, you know, hyper, uh, you know, has a state of uh, increased dihydrotestosterone, which is what sort of is quite fatal uh, to the hair follicle. Uh, yeah. A lot of times, and we've done other podcasts on this, so I can certainly link this in the show notes, but a lot of times with PCOS, one of the issues is it has its roots in hyperinsulinemia. There's too much insulin, there's too much blood glucose. So there can be nutritional and lifestyle modifications such as lifting weights to help with improving insulin resistance, et cetera, that can help with that. And then thyroid, you know, would be the same. You know, we want to be thinking about how we can be improving conversion uh, peripherally, like in the liver, in the gut, in the in the skin. Uh, skeletal muscle in the heart, et cetera, from T4 to T3. And there's, there's, you know, lots of, lots of practitioners that can help with that. Um, so obviously when we're talking about sperm reading, it's not like the miracle it's not, we're not, you know, there's no claims here around being able to cure any disease. What we're talking about yep. is just amplifying and optimizing normal cellular function. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about sleep because I wear a whoop um, <laughs> and, and so, uh, the, what the whoop tells me is that my deep sleep has improved. Um, oh, and so, so I'm easily, easily getting, uh, you know, north of two hours of deep sleep each night. Again, in the same way that nothing really has changed in my you know, I, I lift weights fairly regularly. It's like somewhere between four and five days a week. Um, you know, I walk on my treadmill, like I'm actually standing on my treadmill now. It's not going, but just for, you know, audio purposes, it'd be too loud. But, you know, I walk, um, you know, I, I eat a relatively clean diet. I cycle my carbs, I, you know, all the things. Um, but my deep sleep has improved and my HRV, my heart rate variability. Um, so I wondered if you can comment on any, data that might suggest an improvement, especially in that first half of sleep, like that 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. kind of window, like I'm all deep, like a, a lot of times in the in the past, I might kind of come out of it and or wake up, uh, but that's not really happening anymore for me. So I wanted wondered if you had any comments on, you know, it's maybe it's effect on the circadian rhythm or and anything yep. like that. Yeah. So what's, what's interesting, I will say we need human studies on spermidine and sleep. There is one study that is being conducted right now, which will, uh, sleep is not the main focus, but sleep is a metric that they're looking at. So I hope we'll get that data soon. Um, what we, we have so many 
clients who report that their deep sleep has increased. I was talking to uh, a yoga instructor in New York City, Alina Brower, who said, oh, you know, I'm getting 30 to 60 minutes more deep sleep every night, which is quite incredible. And the mouse studies and the uh, the in vitro studies that have been done, so in vitro being in a Petri dish, show that this helps with circadian reset. So as, uh, as with elderly humans, elderly mice have very uh, erratic sleep-wake patterns. They tend to be awake for longer and have a shorter window of sleep. And that's what many of us witness with our own relatives, our older relatives who've got a radio on or a light on at night. And this is absolutely terrible for brain health because it is only in that sort of 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. window when deep sleep happens that the glymphatic system comes into action, you know, where the different compartments of the brain shrink and these channels of uh, cerebrospinal fluid take out waste. And then it's positive that nutrients are brought back in. And what we can see in the mouse studies is that that resetting happens after they have been administered spermidine. And we know that there is, uh, there is something called the clock gene, which is deep in the pineal gland. And uh, there are soldiers, for instance, who have had terrible um, battle injuries where they lose the photoreceptors in their eyes, which actually speak to the pineal gland and say, now there's sunlight, produce cortisol, wake up. Now it's daylight produce melatonin, go to sleep. Um, in those individuals, their, uh, their clock gene is really dysregulated and their sleep and wake patterns are all over the place. In vitro, at least, those clock genes appear to be impacted by spermidine and they appear to, uh, there appears to be communication such that spermidine can actually help those clock genes uh, regulate better. All of this None of it is in humans. Um, therefore, we can't speak definitively about it. We need more studies. Certainly, uh, you know, clinically, we have doctors such as yourself. We have nutritionists. Um, we have coaches and we have clients all coming to us saying this seems to be very helpful for sleep. It's not in everybody. That's what's very interesting. But it is in a statistically significant percentage of clients that, um, you know, we can say seems to work worth a try. I will, again, caveat like I did with hair growth and thyroid and, uh, and androgenetic alopecia, that there are people who take primidine at night and say, oh, it keeps me awake. And I can't explain that. They then tend to take it in the morning, and that seems to help with energy. I don't, I don't pretend to understand why it's like that, um, but it will, it should Im positively impact that sleep-wake cycle anyway, even if you take it in the morning. And then for the women who are in their 40s, it typically happens like sort of early in their 40s where they sort of have this persistent brain fog. Like, why did I walk into this room again? Like, where's my <laughs> phone? You know, and when I think about spermidine as a whole, uh, the way that I am viewing it is a, is a way to 
you know, as you mentioned with the mitophagy and the autophagy and working on reducing oxidative stress, it's a, it's a way to reduce systemic inflammation. Uh, you know, perhaps as we age, the body is forming more free radicals, more inflammatory agents faster than they can get rid of them in the same way that if you, you know, as we age, if you're not doing anything about it, you'll have more bone resorption than you will have bone growth. You will have more muscle wasting than you will have hypertrophy of the muscle. Um, I wonder if there is, and I wonder if you can speak to, um, the effects that it may have. So we've been talking a little bit about sleep. Certainly that's effects on the brain. I, and, and, you know, as you're talking, I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's like the melanocyte stimulating hormone. I wonder if there's like a key, you know, cause we talked about hair and, yeah. you know, having the melanocytes and the melanin active in that antigen phase. And of course, melanocyte stimulating hormone uh, being released from that central master clock uh, in exposure to light. I wonder if there's something, uh, something there, but could you speak to general brain health you know, for the woman who's listening, who may be, you know, 45, let's say, and she's like, I just don't know where the hell my phone is like 80% of the time. And, you know, I can't think like, there's just this cloud, this persistent fog that I seem to be in. Okay. So I'm putting my health coach hat on here. And I would say that I would look very carefully well, spermidine is supportive. I would first and foremost get hormone panels done and I would get thyroid checked. Most men and women, as we age, thyroid hormone declines. And I find that that really helps with relieving brain fog, but hormones do too. Hormone replacement therapy. If I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be in conversation with Dr. Dale Bredesen. Uh, several months ago, he was doing a presentation to the Oxford Longevity Project, and he was saying, um, you know, off screen that hormone replacement therapy is so protective for women. If we want to avoid dementia and Alzheimer's, it is one of his biggest things. I totally agree. And yeah, that's, that's where I am. I really, you know, personally, those two get your thyroid fixed, you know, figured out and get your hormones fixed. Those are my two biggest recommendations. Spermidine appears to help. Again, it's systemic, but it is not going to replace your estrogen, testosterone, your progesterone. It's not going to do that. It's not going to convert your T4 to T3. And these are things, they're so big that they really need a specialist such as yourself to work hand in hand with a client and get those sorted first. Um, That said, there have been studies on spermidine and cognition and memory. Again, the minimum effective dose was one milligram. And they actually did a study with bread rolls with spermidine. And I think the amount was around two milligrams, maybe two to three milligrams. And it took place in an Alzheimer's home. So these were patients who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. They have been placed in a special home and this was put into their food supply and they used, uh, you know, metrics to score their cognition. And uh, it was shown to improve after three months of administration of the spermidine in the bread rolls. So it seems to help still. I'm going to say my biggest recommendation, HRT and thyroid. Yeah. And I, I appreciate your, um, uh, your conservative, um, 
comments here because I, I, I hold the same views. Uh, I think that supplements should be a supplement, uh, as the name suggests, to an already dialed in uh, yeah. nutrition protocol, hormone protocol, uh, you know, lifestyle protocol, stress management, sleep, hygiene, etc. So what we're when we're talking about this, certainly what I don't want the listener to take away is like, this is going to be my fix. Everything is going to be fixed here. But we're talking about how we can augment an already dialed in routine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And sleep, of course, you know, as I mentioned, if you can improve your sleep as you age and you get that deep sleep, that lymphatic system is going to work well. You will be able to bring the toxins out of the brain. And that is very important to avoid, uh, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's. So what are you currently researching right now um, at Oxford? What are some of the things that are really exciting you right now? Um, well, I've been looking at fertility because I think that is really interesting. Uh, there is existing research on, uh, on fertility, how spermidine and polyamines are needed for producing eggs and how supplementation seems to be able to help a woman with her female germline stem cells as she gets older. You know, I think that especially for a former IVF uh, donor egg patient like myself, uh, looking at the possibility of extending fertility, of getting more eggs, even after those older ages, when the doctors say, sorry, you're infertile, you can only use donor eggs. This is quite exciting. And polyamines are also important for things like implantation, for making the uterine lining, uh, you know, more uh, just sort of conducive to receiving the embryo also for the embryo to grow and very important also for men with spermatogenesis. And we know that men who are infertile have much lower levels of spermine and spermidine. So this is, this is quite fascinating to me personally. Um, in terms of specific research at Oxford, it's really, again, more around uh, elderly immunity and immune senescence. And Gada Al-Saleh, uh, who trained as a pharmacist and uh, is now running these uh, trials at Oxford, is, you know, is a, has been able to show in mice and also in the Petri dish with elderly immune cells that she can rejuvenate them with spermidine. That is very, very exciting. You know, one of the hallmarks of aging is senescent cells. And we can't say that spermidine helps with that, but it definitely helps with senescent immune cells. And that's quite, uh, quite exciting research. So she'll probably be publishing, I don't know, probably in the next, certainly in this next year. That's, that's incredible. And we have, so we will put in the show notes, um, the information for people who are looking to find more about your product, Primidine. This is something, you know, I'm very much a supplement minimalist. Like I don't take tons of supplements. I think that we want to be, you know, as we've been saying sort of throughout this whole conversation, like you really do have to have your nutrition and your fitness and in stress management really dialed in. So I like to take a few key supplements to augment everything that I'm already doing. Um, but spermidine is one of those compounds that I am really excited about. Um, and I've been taking primidine, uh, your product now for 
like it has to be at least eight months, maybe more. I feel like eight, nine months, something like that. Uh, and really have noticed, particularly with my hair, it's the hair that I've really noticed, like the fullness, the shininess, the gray hairs, and then my eyebrows as well. And the, and the sleep as, as we've been talking about. So I'll make sure that we put the link for people to uh, find out more about Permitting in the show notes. And I believe we have a 10% code uh, for a discount, which I'll make sure that you we have. include in there in, in yes. as well. Leslie, it's been wonderful chatting with you. I always, uh, I always learn uh, something new. I'm really excited about the research that you and your team are doing up at Oxford. So thank you and keep up, keep up the good fight. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only and the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 